0: Welcome to the 10th year of the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Allison Saar. The Benton Museum of Art at Pomona College in Claremont, California, and the Armory Center for the Arts in Pasadena are presenting Allison Saar of Ether and Earth through May 16th. The exhibition, which was curated by Rebecca McGrew and Irene Satsos, surveys Sar's work related to myths, hidden histories, and archetypes. Neither institution is presently open due to the pandemic, the shows are currently scheduled to remain installed through May 16th. The catalog for the exhibition was published by the Benton. IndieBound and Amazon offer it for about $45. bucks. we will have links on manpodcast.com. Concurrently, the Crocker Art Museum in Sacramento is also presenting Alison Saar's work in Legends from Los Angeles. The exhibition spotlights work from the Crocker's collection by Betty, Leslie, and Alison Saar. The Crocker is also closed due to the pandemic. Legends should be on view through August 15th. On the second segment, Maria Antelman at the Bemis. But first, Alison Sar. after the break. Compare and contrast. This foundational method of analysis, first championed in the late 19th century by Swiss art historian Heinrich Wolflin, is at the heart of an exhibition of well-known and beloved works at Sheldon Museum of Art. Through July 3rd, 2021, The exhibition Sheldon Treasures presents works in pairs, inviting fresh and unexpected conversations between the works and among viewers. Richard Diebenkorn, Edward Hopper, Helen Lundberg, Ed Ruscha, Kay Sage, and Wayne Thiebaud are among the artists included. For virtual galleries, learning guides, and information about online events, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. Explore an ancient trading center in return to Palmyra, a new online exhibition from Getty. Discover rare photos and etchings of the city, including famous ruins that no longer exist, and learn how Palmyra has transformed over time. Read an interview with Palmyra's former director of antiquities and museums, Walid Khaled al-Sad, who grew up in this famous Syrian desert oasis where he can trace his lineage back five generations. Dive into Palmyra's history and culture from the prehistoric to modern period with art historian Joan Aruz. Return to Palmyra is a dual-language exhibition presented in both English and Arabic. Learn more and start exploring at getty.edu slash palmyra. American artist Lighty Churchman's imagery is wide-ranging, echoing the sheer abundance of visual information that bombards us daily. The paintings treat equally the subjects of animals, landscapes, themes from Tibetan Buddhism, real real estate advertisements, and remakes of works by other artists, from Henri Rousseau to Barbara Kruger. Focus, Lighty Churchman, on view at the modern art Museum of fort worth january twenty second through march twenty first and we 're back, Allison Saar, welcome to the modern Art notes
1: podcast great Tyler, thank you so much for inviting me
0: let 's start out with your interest in in the body the the earliest work in the shows that have been installed across the Southland is Voluptuous Mummy from 1982, which is also the year you earned your MFA from Otis. When I think of that work, I think of how the body was simply not prominent in American art in 1982. <laughs> and that's, that's putting it mildly. So do you remember if whether to make work around and about the body was something with which you wrestled as you were in grad school and leaving grad school?
1: Well, you know, actually, it wasn't until the last maybe five months of my MFA at Otis that I started doing figurative stuff. Up until that point, it was all abstract. I mean, I guess kind of the stuff I was looking at would be Roscoe and Albers and tantric abstractions. And so I was always interested in kind of talking about the spirit somehow. And at that point, I was trying to, you know, do that through color and, and, texture and um, these are like handmade paper pieces and then my father gave me some carving tools and I got a four by four piece of wood and I decided I wanted to make something that you know I just felt was really accessible I think was what my thinking was and at the time I had also been looking at a I think black American folk art show had just come out and two centuries of African-American art show had just come out and i was very much influenced by those two things and that just kind of pushed me in this direction and i just never looked back
0: <laughs> was there a lot of figurative work in that show that then opened the door or gave you permission or you know insert insert phrase here that, <laughs> that aligns with those things
1: yeah you know i think you know i was really in, kind of enthralled with mostly the sculpture because that's what i ended up doing you know the figurative work all came out of being, doing sculptural stuff and And I think William Edmondson was extremely influential. And I would say some of my early work ended up, you know, also had this sort of, I don't want to say crudeness because I think his work is really refined, but somehow I'd gone through like six years of higher art education and never took any sculpture classes or carving classes. So, you know, the, the early works are pretty funky. And I think, well, Voluptuous Mummy is pretty, uh, be rough around the edges. And then I think the the first piece I made actually was c j T. Blanc, which is a piece that's in my mother's collection that was in my MFA show at Otis. And he looks a lot like a four by four. And, you know, this is really kind of roughly hewn and stuff like that. And so over the years, I've gotten a little bit more refined. But yeah, I mean, and I think just what I loved about, you know, self-taught artists were that they weren't overly concerned about, you know, the precision or... You know, they really were just making the stuff and they were really passionate about it. And the work was really accessible and powerful.
0: It almost sounds like the classic story of an MFA student nearing the end, looking to de-skill and, and leave behind all of the things you'd been taught. And there in your father's workshop and influence, you found it?
1: Yeah. And I don't know, I would say there's that much dumbing down because...
0: No, we'll get... No, it is not. We're going to get to that in a minute. (laughs) No,
1: no, no, not not that way. But I'm saying that, you know, art school in the 80s, it was very, you know, it was kind of like, had turned its back on technology at that point. And so, you know, I wasn't really doing any sort of traditional academic technique education sort of thing. I wasn't working from casts or anything like that. So... So I think I was spared having to kind of like throw stuff out because it was actually never really offered in, in you know, in my <laughs> career or my pursuit in art education, you know, in studying art, studio art.
0: Well, excuse the pun, but Voluptuous Mummy is an unusually mature work for an artist on her way out of an MFA program. Sorry, I tried to think of five different ways to phrase that. <laughs> <I> couldn't. <laughs> But what I mean by that is that so much of what your work will include and address for, you know, really ever since is already present here. So it's not just the body, but an address of history and, and making the past present. Was that intentional in 1982, or was it more in the process of making the work you found things upon which you were able to build and did build?
1: You know, I think the work was really just intuitive then and not so much kind of like trying to super analyze, refine what the work was about. I was you know, the 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 materials for that and again you had mentioned my father's workshop, he was an art conservator and when he would reline old paintings that had the edges broken off, I would save all the scraps and so I think there's scraps from, you know, nineteenth century paintings in there and There's also jute and twine and pieces of tin I found in the alley behind his studio and some rawhide, dog rawhide leather in there and things like that and old straps. And so, you know, it really came out of this kind of collection of stuff, which still continues in my work and that sort of history of the materials. But again, because she's so, you know, bound up, you really can't tell how kind of like maybe underdeveloped she is as a figure in terms of not voluptuousness, but in terms of, you know, refinement.
0: <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe with thousands of year years old forms, it's inevitable that we trip over the language because the language itself has emerged <laughs> around some of those forms, right? <laughs>
1: yes.
0: You know, what you said about finding tin behind your father's studio jumps out at me because, one of the most told stories, maybe the most told story about your career, is how when on a studio museum residency in 1984, you mined Manhattan for found material and came upon tin ceiling tiles, and that you picked up a bunch of them and began using them in your work. So it sounds like even before that Studio residency, you had been using tin.
1: This would just be, um, you know, the stuff that I was finding behind my dad's house would be, you know, like flattened tin cans. And so it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't the ceiling tin I didn't really find until I got to New York because it, not at the time, you know, a lot of, you know, turn of the century buildings in the West didn't really include that. So, you know, it really wasn't available out here. Although some of the best cachets I've gotten have been from Calif, from Los Angeles, actually. But so it was there, but it wasn't like on every street corner like it was in New York in, in the mid-80s. So, yeah, that was really a New York discovery. And I think having since moved to California, it's been a little harder to maintain that. Every time I go back to New York I and see a pile of it, I quickly try to figure out how I can get it in the box and ship it home. But
0: <laughs> Well, and tin cans and tin ceiling tiles have different thickness and malleability, and I, I suspect they probably weren't
1: a lot alike anyway yeah, they're just ugly. They're just metal. It was just rusty stuff, which I'm attracted to. So,
0: Well, that's what I wanted to ask is what about those ceiling tiles first attracted you to them, their form, their malleability, the rust, their color, something else?
1: You know, I think really what it came down to was I was also using found wood out of dumpsters. You know, in the 80s, a lot of people started renovating the brownstones and across the street from where we were living in Chelsea. It was a building that had been a stable and they pulled out all of the floor beams and there are these great pieces of timber that were like four four to six inches by eight to ten inches wide and of course they're full of nails and all other stuff so once I got all of that out and hence they wouldn't laminate really tight and so there were all these kind of cracks and crevices in the pieces and so The ceiling tin was really very functional and that I just needed to hold the stuff together and wanted to kind of hide all of those kind of big gouges and cracks and flaws in the wood. So it came out a functional thing. And, you know, I sometimes use copper, but I love the ceiling tin just because, you know, I guess the other story I tell over and over again was this sort of envisioning the ceiling tin, kind of looking down on a lot of the tin came from Harlem. So I was imagining it looking down on, you know, fish fries and, parties and you know rent parties and uh, you know people making love and people dying people died in their apartments at <laughs> those days sort of thing it's and that i think because i was 27 28 years old you know i felt i didn't have a lot of experience to kind of bring to these pieces and that that material actually kind of imbued them with with a sense of experiencing and knowing
0: Tin ceiling tiles have stayed in your work for almost all of the 35 years since, 36 years since. Are you interested in them and do you use them for the same reasons you started using them or have has the way you think about them and find them useful changed?
1: I still use them in that, you know, I think maybe it's developed a little bit more. You know, it's funny because I, I think it's interesting that, you know, when people are responding to your work you sometimes learn a lot about your work that you really didn't intend so much and I remember a friend, well, actually, before she was a friend, I met Evie Shockley, a really amazing poet, and she read a poem that she'd written about my work called My Tin Skin or Her Tin Skin. You know, she really talked about it as being armor and that the seams of these pieces of tile being chinks in the armor and sort of weaknesses and and also a space where you can kind of re- reveals what's underneath sort of thing. And so, you know, I kind of, as the work develop, you know, as time passes, I sometimes glean other people's ideas about the work or responses to the work and it builds up on that so you know I think and sometimes it changes a little bit but it's still very much about you know still very very functional and yeah it's just something I'm still attracted to maybe it's time I should move on but you know you don't want to get too comfortable with material sometimes but it still just feels right and I think I also just love the activity of Putting it on, it becomes, you know, this sort of rhythmic thing of hammering these little pieces like a puzzle. I don't know. It was something really gratifying about after all of the chainsawing and all of the chiseling and all of that kind of hard sweat work where you have to think and cut at the same time, which is kind of complicated for me. You know, it kind of just had this sort of laying on, of, it's almost, it feels like a libation in a certain respect, this kind of laying on of this material that kind of pulls it all together and really gives her a singular form
0: addition rather than removal.
1: Yeah, exactly. Kind of, it feels like it's a finishing. I don't varnish. I don't paint (laughs) so much. It feels like it kind of uh, brings her to rest or I don't know. I'm not sure if rest is the right word, but yeah.
0: We could talk about a lot of works in which you use tin ceiling tile and we probably will, but I want to use your great 1995 strange fruit for me, your masterpiece and one of the greatest works of 20th century art as a way into a few things that recur in, in your work. that's the, the, That work is the is the work at the Baltimore Museum of Art, of course. First, you're joining a Venus pose from the European tradition to forms or ideas taken from African traditions, such as Congo and Nikisi power figures, and then you're joining those references to unmistakably American historical subjects, and, and cultural subjects, too, for that matter, in, including the famous Laura Duncan song made famous by Billie Holiday was joining the transatlantic world in single in, in single objects in single artworks building a globalist address in a single artwork a foundational idea
1: you know i think it just is a coming together and i think what i love about you know transatlantic culture is that it you know just that it's bringing it over to the americas and it is taking what's already here in the americas and putting those things together And it keep, you know, rather than it being something of the past or something historical per se, it's constantly present and it's constantly growing and living and constantly part of our here and now. And so, you know, I love going into some of the botanicas out near my studio and, you know, you've got uh, sculptures of Orishas and you've got Catholic sculptures and you've got, you know, weird plastic dolls. And then you've got just, you know, just, you know, real shoes and just all these things that kind of come in You know, and someone sees connection to that history in an everyday object, and then that gets brought into the fold. And so I think that's always been really fascinating for me. And I think my undergraduate work was done at Scripps College, which is we studied the classics and all of that. And so I think there's a lot of kind of folding into that mix of Yoruba and Fon mythologies and transatlantic ideologies in with and finding sort of resonance in Greek. And Roman mythology as well. And so I, you know, I kind of find how these things can connect with other historical cultures. And then again, how they kind of are very much present here and now, kind of what I find really exciting. And then, you know, the ability to kind of like hear all of that and see all that and coming through music from both Billie Holiday and... Well, Ma Rainey, who's now on the forefront of everyone's mind. And, you know, even seeing kind of like how those influences are in contemporary music. And that's all just really exciting for me. I don't
0: want to be that critic who critics are always pointing at, at your mother, Betty Saar. And, and it must be said, it's pretty rare for the daughter of an artist to have had as major a career as the mother of the artist. But with a work like Strange Fruit, it's impossible not to think that the overlapping of cultures and histories is something you must have just grown up with as, like, I grew up drinking water, you know. You must have been familiar with with joining ideas, places, times, histories, and traditions in a way that, gosh, almost nobody else could possibly have been.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I think, you know, that is probably where my mother's and my own works kind of... Coincide the most or overlap the most is that, you know, early on she was just taking any, you know, we go to these flea markets, she pick up all sorts of just crazy stuff, derogatory images and then tchotchkes from, you know, Egypt and then some African pieces. Often they're just like kind of like bad trade stuff. But, and then she was also, you know, early on very much involved in images of the occult and stuff like that. And so, yeah, like there's no denying that that was really, you know, deeply ingrained in who I am, <laughs> you know, how we were raised. You know, we were kind of like open to it all, right? You know, we had uh, the tarot cards sitting around on the table along with, you know, all this other weird stuff. And and then from my ba- my father's side, who was, you know, very traditionally classically trained and western art as a maker, as an artist, but also then his work was doing conservation and kind of Western work. And so, and so his books were all, you know, I think the books he gave me were Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and all of these very classic works and early Roman sculpture books of early Roman sculptures. And then my mother had all of these really great books on African art and African-American artists and the art of China and Japan and all that. So, you know, all of these worlds were present on our coffee table sort of thing. So, you know, saw it all, all at once, really early, early on, yeah.
0: In the interview you do in the catalog with the curators for the Benton Armory show or shows, you go out of your way to say that The mini sculptures in which you have or present figures hanging by their feet are not lynchings. The reference seems hard to miss, both for me and I guess for other critics and historians, especially given that title of of the 95 work. Did that work, the, the Baltimore work, start out as an address of lynching? And has perhaps your use of hanging figures or the way you think about the hanging figures changed over time?
1: You know they're they're, they're definitely re- referring to lynchings, and I think it's really interesting because I think that's everyone's first response of a figure hanging, even though they're inverted. And I think that inversion means, for me, means in some ways that there's an escape, that it's not irreversible, that it's not something that. And I guess what I'm really kind of interested when I'm kind of talking about these is kind of how, in some ways, and how we sort of Tie ourselves up and how we sort of, you know, the works are in some ways about apathy. The works are in some ways about how we kind of give up hope to resist against things like lynchings, how we are unable to disentangle ourselves from what's out there. So, you know, it kind of means a lot of different things, and not all of them mean the same. You know, I I think Strange Fruit maybe has a different meaning than a piece like Traveling Light. Another, which is also another song made famous by Billie Holiday. But, you know, they're all kind of really talking about being kind of trapped in these situations and how we have to find the spirit or call within the spirit and the strength within ourselves to free ourselves and disentangle ourselves from things that are oppressed upon us and things that we sometimes oppress upon ourselves you know, by succumbing to these things or allowing things to happen and to not really have the fortitude to stand up and strike against it. And I think, you know, part of the reason why I feel comfortable making those pieces is because I find that, you know, I think Black Americans have shown, you know, historically and I think what we're experiencing right now, a lot of fortitude to stand up and buck against those things. You know, I never wanted to work to feel like it was so, that there was no resolution to these situations. And I never wanted the works to feel that we're victimized to the point that there was no way to save ourselves because I think that's what it comes down to. And so, you know, I think that there is somewhat an escape to kind of getting out of these situations. So that's what I are upside
0: down travel and light is a 1999 sculpture that is in the sculpture garden of the new orleans museum of art we'll have uh, an image on manpodcast.com of course while we're still on ceiling tin your earlier sculptures made from ceiling tin tended to conceal the rivets or whatever you call them that, that attach the sculpture that hold it together and in recent years as you've continued to use ceiling tin the points of joining and construction, if you will, have become more explicit, often with more rivets, often in colors that contrast with the other material or color in the sculpture. Are you conscious of having foregrounded the construction of of the thing? And if you are, why have you done it?
1: Well, they're basically just nails, because the, the figure is solid wood underneath, you know, and I just put the tin on. I mean, that's why I also like the tin. It's just A real simple thing, you're just nailing the thing onto it and kind of like forging it over the figure sort of thing. And I think, you know, part of it was, you know, the techniques change sometimes. You know, I think in some of those, I was laying the tin on, it would be rusty, and then I'd re-rust it again, so then the nails would take on the same rust as the other, as the original tin ceiling. I know recently I've been doing figures that are covered in copper, and I've left the nails very bright because I like that they became almost constellations that you have these bright points in these sort of dark blue sea of materials. And so I guess, you know, I think it's funny because I think the more the work develops, the less I kind of fret about things looking finished. And so, you know, the really early works they had like inlaid eyes and, you know, they're almost dressed the way dolls were. And then, you know, all of that stuff started falling away that they didn't even have eyes at all. <laughs> you know, they were just kind of like faces without even a, a space where eyes would be. And for me, that didn't seem terribly horrific and strange. I think it could be monstrous to some folks. So it was, I think, a part of a lot of sort of these sort of techniques of finishing things have started to fall away.
0: While we're talking about eyes and and heads, let's let's stay there for a moment. Your heads are, and this isn't just of the ceiling tin work, this this is across your practice, your heads are rarely expressive. I'm not sure that's the right word. Maybe individuated is a better word. Your, your heads and faces offer maybe mostly stand-ins for faces, more than specific faces. And I wonder how and why that happened and why that's remained in the work.
1: You know, part of that is just, still a very sort of crude process that I follow in terms of making things very simple. But I do like the idea that they can be anyone and everyone, you know, that I find things, you know, and and I think that's what's kind of complicated about putting clothing on some of these figures is that soon as you put article of clothing or kind of get these other more specific details and that starts to limit as to who they are and who they can represent. And so, you know, because the clothing would have a specific time, per se, the, the, of style. And so, yeah, I, you know, it's also just kind of trying to keep them hyper, hyper simple. And I think also, you know, there's kind of this sort of almost trance-like, almost emotionalist kind of pose to the face as well. And so, you know, they're not smiling. They're not jeering. They're not ness. I guess, maybe my last girls from my Topsy series look like they're kind of grimacing, they look a little mean, but the rest of them are kind of emotionalist. And I think part of the idea of these pieces is that they're kind of like these stoic representatives of of a history and of the present. So in terms of them being this stoic sort of thing is really important to me in that when they're not kind of giving into the pain, they're not also getting so wrapped up in the joy for those few pieces that are joyful, <laughs> or even the ecstasy. There are a few ecstatic figures in there as well. They may be experiencing that, but they're not kind of giving the viewer the satisfaction of the, their, their true sort of internal feelings.
0: You've made a number of sculptures of people, usually or always women, carrying material on their heads or having something attached to their heads. So I'm thinking of works like Inheritance from 2003, in which an enormous ball of muslin, I think, is on a person's head, or the 2016 Breach, in which a woman on a very small raft is carrying all her possessions on her head, post-Katrina work. It seems like people carrying things on their head is in some way kind of an opposite of someone being upside down and hanging. Are those moves or ideas related in in your own mind?
1: Yeah, in a certain respect. And I should say that, you know, of course, you know, I think inheritance, was inheritance the first figure carrying something on her head?
0: First one I could find without a library in the middle of a pandemic, let's put it that way.
1: It comes out of a lot of things, but I think, you know, inheritance was a real direct response of, you know, the one and only time I've been to Africa, I went to Senegal to Dakar. And, you know, we've seen all these images, you know, National Geographic and all of this stuff, but to actually be present with these women that had this, you know, grace to be able to do walk, even dance, carrying things upon their heads. And that, you know, this burden became weightless and this notion of balance and control in a life where control is really complicated and really difficult and i just had such admiration for this grace and strength in these figures that it kind of took over my my train of thought and i you're right i have done quite a few pieces with things with women bearing huge loads upon their heads and, you know, I think the Breach figure specifically, you know, it was based on, you know, that was part of a series I did looking at Katrina and then looking back historically to the Great Mississippi Flood of 1926-27 and how, you know, these people were literally carrying everything they owned on their back or, you know, are, not so much on their heads, but, you know, were carrying everything, you know, that they owned or that they could possibly save from the waters. and you know, I just was really in admiration of people dealing with these disasters brought on by nature, but then exacerbated by racist policies that they were surrounded by and always constantly subjected to. And so, you know, I I just kind of love that you could kind of have uh, a grace in it. It just showed to me the sort of inner strength and power. And so, yeah, I think inheritance which I also say is sort of a quasi portrait of my mother who lost her father and really run young age. And her mother, you know, kind of as mothers do say, well, you know, you're, you've got to help me take care of the family and help raise these kids. And, and she did. And that, you know, for a, a five-year-old girl to kind of feel like she had this burden of, a, of helping her mother maintain this family was really intense. And I think it really formed who she is, you know, in terms of being really strong and really powerful and having a lot of fortitude and so these are like so she became this kind of child Atlas, and that was actually something I also witnessed while in Senegal where these young kids also carrying stuff you know helping their mother carry stuff to the market or carrying their siblings on their backs with other things on top of their heads and you know the contrast to you know children in the states contrast to my own children (laughs) you know just they're like child atlases to me, and so that's kind of where that whole idea started.
0: One of the the standards from from many cultures that you've addressed in your work is the reclining nude, including in the very great Compton Nocturne from 1999 at the Weatherspoon at UNC Greensboro. Among among the nice things of living in Western North Carolina these days is I get to see that work a lot. The reclining nude is a heck of a thing for any artist to take on. <laughs> Why did you want to?
1: Oh, again, just kind of looking at, you know, the way women and the being women often of color or white women as slaves, as concubines, and then the concubines having slaves themselves, if you think of some of the kind of really, some of the paintings of odalisques, And so, no, it's always just kind of intrigued by this idea of, you know, this sort of they're predicted as being very languid and very sex sexual and um, enticing. There were these kind of like teas of these paintings. And I wanted to kind of take that figure and have it be confrontational and have it sort of wanted to have that woman take control of her figure again and not denying her sexuality, but not proffering it and not, you know, kind of having it exclusively for the male gaze. And so, you know, so they have this tough tin skin. Compton Nocturne kind of also kind of talks about, you know, how we all dream and we all have dreams and aspirations, but her dreams are now kind of contained in these sort of spirit tree, bottle bottle tree type things that are coming out of her head. Yeah, so the most recent Odalisque piece I did was for the Freeze Art Fair called Set to Simmer, which is a woman who is actually lying down on a kitchen table, which is like a big taboo where I come from, and naked, laying naked on your kitchen table. And then she is kind of, she's got her legs open and yet kind of crossed in a way that you would, you know, to violate her would require permission. And so it's so she's holding a frying pan in one hand, a lot of the kind of traditional little paintings, they're holding a mirror, kind of this sort of self absorbed gazing of their of their beauty and this sort of also this idea that the viewer is the voyeur and kind of a stealing a glance at her. Sort of thing that she's in, involved with her, her own toilet, and you know, we are kind of peering behind the curtain, sort of thing. And I wanted this to be out on the kitchen table, out in the open, and there's even a chair that you're supposed to pull up and sit down in this chair, which puts you pretty much at crotch height. For me, the piece is saying, Yeah, you know, if you're don't be looking at me out of the side of your eye you know don't give me these kind of scans don't be peeking behind the curtain or anything if you want to see who I am you need to sit down in this chair and really take a good look and of course she has this frying pan held aloft that you know should you make any false moves you would quickly be well slapped upside the head with it yeah (laughs) But then the other aspect of that is that there's a drawer in the table and you pull the drawer open and I don't know if, you know, you had one of these in your homes or in your grandmother's home, but there's this kind of catch it drawer that has pieces of string and old notes or keys to like nowhere. And, you know, these keys don't belong to anything anymore, right? Do you have one of those? Oh, I've got
0: two of those.
2: Oh,
1: you've got two of those. I think I got it more than I should as well. But I, you know, love these drawers and I just love kind of going through, through them and checking it out. And so basically I did a collaboration with Dionne Brand, a writer, a poet up in um, Canada and asked her to write things for these objects. And so some of them are on pieces of note paper, you know, some of them are tied to keys. Some of them are on pieces of, you know, torn fabric and whatnot. And the idea being that, you know, these are these fragments of who this person is and by you opened with a pun. I may hit a couple of puns in the I or it, but you're, the viewer is invited to go through her drawers and try to really understand this person. And so these are all, you know, and the pieces, the beautiful words that Diane put in here are these kind of thought fragments. And so you're kind of trying to puzzle together who this person is. And she's a complicated person. And, you know, she has dreams and she has fears and she has all these things that, you know, all these mysterious things we'll never understand. But, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, you can't just know me. You can't just think of me as this sort of voluptuous, available black body. You need to really sit down and look at all these pieces of who I am and know that, yeah, that you can never understand me.
0: (laughs) I I think in that description, you're beginning to address what for me is the most consistent reference across your reclining nudes. And that is that the figures always have self-determination and that often they express or, or you express for them, <laughs> given that they're not alive, that self-determination through their hair or, or through what is attached to their hair in the case of the bottles in, in the Compton Nocturne piece from 99. You've made lots of work with of and about hair over the years, but I wonder if it's taken on a particular role or utility in, in your reclining nudes.
1: Oh, I don't know if it's specifically different to the reclining nudes, because I think, you know, that same treatment is also for a lot of the figures that are upright as well. But uh, yeah, I have a mega obsession with hair. And I think in part that, you know, to look at me, I'm very fair. You would not know that I was was half African-American and that I identify as African-American by looking at me And, you know, for me, my hair would be maybe the one thing that would kind of like blow my cover if I was trying to pass and that, you know, I've got my mother's hair. And so that is part of why I think that's really important to me in my work and as sort of an identifier. And then also kind of looking back at all these hair rituals, you know, that we grew up with. And I think, you know, this show, I mentioned the piece set to simmer, which was part of a whole exhibition that was called chaos in the kitchen that really was talking about, you know, the function of the kitchen and one of those functions of the kitchen is where you go to press your hair, you know, to get, you know, to heat up the hot combs on the stove. And so, you know, mingling with smells of things, cooking with the smell of burning hair and maybe sometimes burning flesh, depending on how careful your, your hairdresser was being at the moment, you know? And so it's kind of, Memories of ritual involvement in hair and then also looking at sort of rituals, you know, transatlantic rituals of coming from Africa, the idea of hair and hairstyles as identifiers in terms of where you stand socially and what your group is and, you know, what your marital status is and even how many kids you have can be expressed in your hair. And then to see kind of all the different kind of a hoops that Black women have jumped through to kind of alter their hair and in some ways, I think, deny their hair's natural state. And even remembering, you know, my mother transitioned from, you know, processing her hair and using hot combs in her hair to her first natural, and how it was like such a relief because then we had to spend hours at the freaking hair salon, which as a co- child is kind of mixed with being really fascinating that you're hearing all these crazy stories and that women, again, upon let their hair down in the hair salon, you know, it's very similar to kind of the black barbershop scene where that's where the talk just goes rampant. But then it also just meant that you had to sit around. And then if you did get your hair pressed, you know, you couldn't go swimming. You couldn't, you were kind of like on, you know, limbo for a couple of weeks until, you know, you finally were able to just go and goof off again, sweat and all that stuff. Your hair would go kinky again. So yeah, there's a lot of things about hair that have really been fascinating in my upbringing and kind of how we kind of choose to present ourselves and how we alter or enhance our identity through our hair.
0: Was there is there one or two nudes from art history that is or are important to you?
1: You know, I think a pose that comes up in my work often and often would be Botticelli's Venus. Uh, I call her Venus on the half shell. Is that what she's called? I don't know what her real I, name is.
0: That's, that's how I, I that's okay. certainly the common vernacular uh, way of yeah, referring to it. it's
1: so cool that she's <laughs> surfing in on this half shell. I love that. <laughs> and then, you know, because then there's the sable Venus, which was a, basically an engraving based on that painting as well. So I love that, you know, there's kind of even this history of kind of African American women in that. So that one. I think one of the other pieces, not necessarily in these shows, because it's a male f- figure, would be Dying Slave. Michelangelo's Dying Slave was one of the first kind of classic pieces of art that I kind of remade.
0: <laughs> a number of your nudes are are blue. There's Sea of Serenity from 2007. There's Via Lactea from 2013. I think even Black Bottom Stomp from 2015 is blueish. Why are so many figures blue?
1: I'm really fascinated with indigo and ultramarine. You know, to me, it's kind of like it's the end of the spectrum where blue goes into violet and then becomes invisible. And I think it's kind of like, you know, the color beyond that becomes spirit color. I'm also really intrigued with indigo having been a product from Africa that was then brought well, introduced throughout Europe and then, but, you know, was one of one of the major slave crops in the United States and became Blue Jeans and all these other things that we kind of take for granted that, you know, were basically a slave crop. And, of course, you know, this, you know, playing off of, you know, the blues and the terminology in Black vernacular, both in music and just general speaking. And so I think it just feels like a really magical color to me. And I love this sort of deep indigo ultramarine that feels like you can just fall into it, maybe for the same reason that Klein was really interested in it, right? It's just this color that drinks in light and starts to suck you in.
0: Let's talk about Topsy for a moment. Topsy is a character in the most influential novel in American history, Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin. Topsy's not a primary character in the book, but but she sure is in, in your work. She was foregrounded most in a show you had at LA Louvre Gallery in Santa Monica two or is it Venice? Venice. Venice two years ago called Topsy Turvy, I think. Why did you want to bring Topsy forward and why then? Why why in the mid 2010s?
1: Well actually probably the earlier trying to remember actually the Topsy, the first Topsy I made was when my daughter was five, so that would have been, well, 98, I guess, because she posed for me. So, you know, I think while she's not a major character in Harriet B. Tristow's book per se, she became a huge character in terms of derogatory and vaudeville sort of depictions of African-American children. So, you know, you look at early, there was a lot of plays and theaters and films in the 20s. 1910, 1920s that took this topsy figure and really were latched onto her, right? You know, that she was surly and unruly and unkept and, you know, she had her pigtails and was just really reinforced all these racist derogatory images that were coming around that time and, and racist and derogatory thoughts that were really prevalent in the United States from early 19, 1900s. So, you know, so that was an image that side, you know, along with Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben, Topsy was always kind of like the child version. I guess there was the ivory soap twins as well, the whole twins. But so that's kind of an image that's kind of out there a lot and was really also, because my mother collected a lot of that derogatory stuff to use in her work, was something that I saw really early on. And so, you know, when I kind of finally went back and read Uncle Tom's Cabin. You know, Beatrista, who was trying to depict this child as this is a product of slavery. If you take a child's mother away and if you treat her poorly, if you beat her, she will become unruly and animal-like and surly and thieving and sassy and, you know, all of these things that children shouldn't be. And that, you know, basically that slavery had made her. So she wrote wrote this as, you know, as an abolitionist. She wrote this with the idea that this is a cause and effect sort of thing. But what I wanted to do was see Topsy not as a failure, but see Topsy as this girl who knew her own mind and who resisted and was resilient and survived things like being orphaned and things like being beaten and denied things that children should normally have and that she became this fierce child that really knew her mind. And so when she, I think she's accused of stealing something at one point and she says, Oh yeah, I stole that. And it was like, you hadn't even stole it, but she was going to like, she's going to own it because that's who she was. She was just like badass. And so, <laughs> you know, I kind of really saw her and I think I, I did this piece after, this. the idea of this piece came to me after hearing, when they finally released the recording made by Landa Castile's girlfriend or partner, and you hear her daughter in the background. And for me, trying to understand how a child could experience that, and who that child grows up to be, and how that child is not going to be traumatized for the rest of her life, and destroyed by that event. What I wanted to do was write an ending to that story for her and other children that have witnessed such things or have even been victims of police brutality, them themselves, or even just horrific things that kids go through every day in terms of being called, you know, racist names, walking down the street or stoned. I mean, this happens all the time. And how do these children, who shouldn't have to experience any of this stuff, survive this? And how do they kind of overcome that? And how do they become brilliant, beautiful adults? And how did they take this and turn this into something that can not necessarily enrich, but maybe strengthen them? And so that's a rather long <laughs> run, run on long answer to that, to that question. But that's who Topsy represents for me, is this fierce child who's very smart, who's, you know, she kind of is this puckish figure in that she's always asking these crazy questions, you know, when they ask her who made her trying to, you know, trying to egg her on to say that, you know, God made her and to embrace Christianity. She says, you know, I will expect nobody made me. I, I just growed. And I love this idea that she's not going to give in to say that, you know, she's not going to like sign up for, you know, salvation. She doesn't need to be saved. She's who she is and she's proud of it.
0: You know, one of the things I have seen in your Topsy sculptures is that they're unusually individuated within your oeuvre. They are you know, more facially defined, for example. They are more kind of active as if they could almost come to life in terms of their body posture and what they might be holding, for example. And one of the things I wondered about them is, so in the 19th century, of course, you know, tens of millions of people read Uncle Tom's Cabin, but it was also performed as as a play and was, I think the historian David Reynolds estimates that more people saw the play than read the book in 19th century America. And, you know, there was no single script for the play written by by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This was kind of in a very copyrighty netherworld and so Topsy was in some of those productions, but probably not in others. And of course, we have no record of those productions beyond, you know, write-ups and newspapers and such. All of which is a long way of my asking if you were aware of of that theatrical history and if theatrical possible depictions of Topsy m- informed you or or helped you imagine toward the figure.
1: Yeah, no, I was, and you know, because I think that's a lot of where those images. Came from that, absolutely right, Right. yeah. And so, like I said, really early cinema, there's a silent film of Uncle Tom's Cabin where she has a huge role in it. You know, she's in there in her blackface, quote unquote, monkeying around almost in every scene. You know, she, like you said, she's not in the book in that. So much. And so, yeah, you know, I think you know, this was just like racist America really embracing that character as this kind of comic relief sort of thing and to, again, reinforce their own sort of racist ideas. And it was just so contrary to, you know, what Beatrice Stowe was trying to express. I don't know if she necessarily she obviously didn't succeed in that. But, you know, someone took that and ran with it and kind of really turned it upside down, turned it on you know, topsy turvy, did turned it upside down on its head sort of thing. And you even think of like the top topsy-turvy doll, which is a white doll and then a black doll. All this kind of, you know, which is also really popular in turn-of-century culture as well, in late 1800s, early 19th century and 1900s. You know, it's interesting we were saying that it was hugely popular. I was in China last year and, you know, trying to explain these pieces, I'm like, oh, you know, I'm gonna have to somehow talk about Uncle Tom's Cabin and all that. It was hard enough with translators and all of that. And I pulled it up and I started talking and everyone raised their hands. and says, oh, no, we've all read Uncle Tom's Cabin. It's required reading in China. And that really blew me away. Like, well, that makes my job a lot easier. So, yeah, it's really interesting to see how far reaching that is and how it's curious that the book is really rarely read here in the States. Well, understandably so, but how it is, you know, popularized and misinterpreted so much way back when, and I think continues to be so. But in terms of how you began uh, your question, in terms of them having an expression, and like I said, a lot of these figures, you know, historically have been very, my work have been very stoic. It's kind of like, you know, looking at sculptures as something they're being put in this Position to be observed. And so the viewer is invited to come in and scrutinize this figure. And so they are always feeling, you know, I think of like Sajid Bartman, the Hottentot Venus, and kind of how she was put on display. And so I think of these figures kind of being put on display and that you're looking at them, but they are still kind of holding some sort of self dignity in all of this and are able to withstand the gaze. But that kind of changed for these figures in Topsy-Turvy in that I did not want them to be passive. I did not want them to, I wanted them to actually be threatening. The show is installed at L.A. Louver. You come into the gallery, and they're basically facing you off. They're all coming out of this corner, coming across the gallery, and they're threatening. They're holding up their sickles and scythes and hoes and cane knives and tobacco knives and cotton bales
0: they have blue they have blue lips which feels like kind of fierce stage makeup in a way
1: yeah right or you know yeah almost kind of kabuki uh makeup but that you know that they have this grimace their their lips are so taut that they're the turning blue, you know, they're so angry that they're starting to turn blue. And yeah, so they have this sort of ferocity, or I would hope that, you know, I wanted them to be fierce and I wanted them to have this very activated presence. So, that, so it was a bit of a departure from the work prior to that. Yeah.
0: You mentioned early on when we were talking about Topsy that the series was informed in part by, by your experience of motherhood and motherhood, there's a lot of motherhood in, 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 in your work. One of the ways in which you address motherhood is by making sculptures that activate the figure's nipples as a site from which things emanate. You know, certainly a reference to life-giving and nurturing. And one of the things about those sculptures that maybe exists only in those sculptures within your body of work is they kind of flirt with surrealism. And, and you know, maybe mostly remind me of a show at LACMA about a decade ago about women surrealists. Surely it must have occurred to you as you've made works like Via Lactea that they are closer to surrealism than just about anything else you've made. Why was that OK for you? What, 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 what about that association worked?
1: You know, I guess I never think about them as being surrealist per se. And I'm, you know, I, of course, is really enthralled and fascinated by surrealist work really early on, it's that, it's that kind of work that really grabs you when you're a teenager, right? It's a real, similar to the way Matisse does that, you know, you're kind of really fascinated with these kind of altered reality sort of things. But I, you know, think it really comes out of more sort of this sort of idea of magic realism, or, you know, kind of looking at the way fiction and reality functions and works from, Mexico or from Africa or, you know, different areas of the Americas where there is not a whole lot standing between what's real and what's not real. And I don't even say what's not real. I would say the real world and spirit world. So for me, I'm really more interested in kind of how these events happen. And they kind of are this space where the real world is dancing with the spirit world, or commingles with the spirit world. So I don't really, you know, I didn't see it as being something unreal per se, but maybe something that is sort of making visible the invisible.
0: Surreal means hyper real, rather than unreal, at least in its in, in its original usage. I guess it's kind of changed as you know, language changes over the many years.
1: Right. Yeah. So we you know so, but but for me, I think you know that that is a, a reality. It's just not necessarily recognized or perceived. And it's just kind of like, you know, when you spray this smoke over the light, all of a sudden those forms become visible. Your use
0: of trees and branches are also kind of magically real.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, that's kind of, you know, again, you know, I grew up in Laurel Canyon. You know, that's kind of my environment. You know, it's, you know, I am from L.A. I'm basically from Hollywood. But, you know, my reality was going out and actually I live in Laurel Canyon now my reality was going out and playing, you know, and you wouldn't say the woods because they're just sagebrush, playing in the chaparral, shall I say. But, you know, we used to make houses out of sticks and roots and all these things. We used to, that was kind of, those were our, that was our playground. And so I think that's also something I feel really intuitively or really deeply connected to is the natural world. And, you know, I'm going back to sort of your mention of motherhood. And I think that was really when the work took a shift to almost being predominantly female figures is when I had my first kid, my first child, I have two. And all of a sudden it's just like, whoa, this body is really incredible that it can kind of make this baby and it can feed this baby. And it just really blew me away because, you know, up until that point, you know, the body was You know, something to, you know, clothe or unclothe or, you know, was sexual, but it wasn't able to kind of make stuff, which to me really blew my mind. And really, again, kind of like when my son was born, I was like, where did this spirit come from? Who is this person? And yeah, so I think it really had a huge impact in terms of the things I was really interested in making art about. You know, it all it, it becomes political when you think in terms of, you know, how women's bodies are sexualized exclusively or whether, you know, our bodies are somehow inhibits our ability in the world's mind out there, how we are unable to do things because we're female. So I think, you know, that comes in politically into the work as well. But, you know, to me, it's really about kind of what we're able to do as opposed to what we're not able to do because of the strength and the magic of our bodies. Yeah.
0: I want to close by asking about two public sculptures you've made of of women that carry within them many of the ideas you've just been talking about. One is uh your Harriet Tubman memorial at 122nd and Frederick Douglass in New York City, variously dated to 2006 or 2007 depending on what you read, <laughs> and a sculpture titled Embodied from 2011 at the Los Angeles County Hall of Justice. The latter is very much an abstraction of an idea. And features a female form the the Tubman memorial is has, has plenty of ideas too, but it's more specifically Tubman for obvious reasons right that you know that's two very different approaches to doing major public work in major sites, one more abstract than than the other. What did you learn about how what would work in public and how the bodies of women could carry ideas in? prominent public places?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, both of those were specific commissions. One of them needed to be sort of a figure of justice and whatever, you know, and there was some challenges in terms of how I was going to interpret that, that would be embodied. And then the other one was specifically a portrait of Harriet Tubman and not being a portrait artist. I think that was a challenge for me.
0: But let me, let me just jump in real quick. There's a lot more to We'll have an image on manpodcast.com, but there's more there than a portrait, including, you know, the representation of her dress and a train.
1: Right. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, for me, I should say, I, I was going to say it was fortunate that actually there's only... At the time, I think there has since been a fourth, but there were only three images of Harriet Tubman at the time. And so, you know, I could kind of invent how she looked somewhere between there, in between there. So it's not, you know, really focused on a likeness of her, but I really wanted to talk about who she was as this sort of, again third pun of the, of our conversation, you know, this unstoppable train, you know, and, and her, you know, as a conductor of the Underground Railroad and how she was just this really incredible, compassionate figure. And so, you know, I try to think of all these ways, if I wasn't able to make this look like Harriet Tubman so much, which was not quite as important to me as really wanting to depict, you know, her spirit and her kind of like, ferocity and her power and her compassion and so you know that's why I have her kind of you know at this angle she's kind of running up against she's going up up literally up against traffic the traffic splits coming around her you know I don't know if there was a huge controversy about her facing south which to me really talked again kind of really talked about her compassion was that yeah she took people north but why we know of Harry Tubman was because she kept going south again and again, and kind of going back even to the same town where she, you know, where she escaped from. And so, yeah, during the war, and then, you know, and then, you know, we always, I think she's kind of known uh, as the, you know, the conductor of the underground railroad or Moses, but, you know, she also, you know, was a educator and she was a healer and she was a politician and she was a nurse. So she had all of these other aspects of her life and, and, and a warrior. So, you know, I wanted to also kind of talk about, so these little patchwork quilt pieces that are around are based on a quilt made by ex-slave uh, Harriet Powers that I think is in the collection of, it's in the Smithsonian collection. I forget which museum specifically, but so I was kind of borrowing from her style, which were very beautiful, simplified sort of iconography um, to tell her story. Cause I also, wanted to talk I wanted to be able to tell her story without words because she was unable she was illiterate she couldn't read and so I wanted you know to be able to tell her story without something that that would be accessible to her and others so children people that speak different languages all these so that so all these little kind of stations of her life you know try to tell her story and then she has these roots that are coming out from her that think also kind of talks about, you know, this sort of plow. Her her petticoat is um like a cattle catcher on a train.
0: Yeah, that was the word I couldn't think of.
1: Right. Yeah. Kind of pushing things away. But it also becomes this kind of plow. So she's plowing through, you know, the mire of slavery. And she is kind of uprooting sort of slavery in her wake as well. So she's kind of pulling these roots up. And it was also kind of talking about how you know, she basically up and left. She left her family behind, everything. And then she went back and was able to actually bring many of her family members to freedom. But that first escape, she just walked away from it all. And I just think that was a really... Brave and difficult thing to do, but most people would consider that selfish, but then of course she turned around and was able to do that for so many other people, so no one can say that of her. so that's really kind of the the Tubman one, and you know it's you know went through a lot of phases until I finally kind of came up with all those different components and she also has these faces of her passengers pressing out from her skirt. but then the embodied piece, which is at the uh, Hall of Justice. In downtown Los Angeles, which I think houses the district attorney and the sheriff,
0: all those, all those, all those blue, the, the popular Trumpist racist use of the black and white American flag with a blue line that runs through it, had its origins in that building in the LAPD. So, so it's a, it's a, it, it, and where it was invented as a white supremacist racist symbol. So, it, it's, it's a charged site for lots of reasons.
1: It's a fraught history and presence, you know, and I. And hopefully, we with this last election, we kind of maybe pushing beyond that a little bit. But at the time, the um, when sheriff was kind of this was like the thing he wanted to do. Sheriff Baca was wanting to have this piece put up, and he brought this piece of, uh, you know, your traditional liberty figure of justice. Excuse me. He brought out this you know, classic justice figure with her blindfold and her sword and the scales. And I looked at each of those components and really thought about, you know, what they were supposed to represent and what they have come to represent. And, you know, this double edged sword, which was intended for swift justice. But I think for, you know, Los Angeles, it was more a case of cruelty and slaughter and cutting down of people's rights And the scale, which, you know, was supposed to be about equity, really, to me, represents, uh, it's a money scale. And so it represents how those with money have a different sort of justice in Los Angeles and throughout the United States than people without money. And the blindfold, which you know was to represent that you weren't seen, you know that again to represent equity, but that blindfold also could represent the unwillingness to look at the facts of those I have situations that sometimes put them in predicaments that that is their only way to survive is through maybe less than legal means. And so I really wanted to kind of strip away all of those things and so I have her eyes kind of open in terms of all seeing that she sees everything um, on both sides of the story, and that she's holding this really long braid. And the idea was, you know, this kind of bringing together of three entities: of law, which isn't has good intentions, but sometimes it has a history of being inequitable, and the justice system, which we know is problem has been problematic in the United States. Um, in terms of racial inequity, and then, you know, the the people and the public. So I thought this, you know, the idea of braiding these three things together, that they could actually work together towards their original intention or what they're intended to be, as opposed to how they are are enforced in, in our day and time. So that's why she has this long kind of braid. And then she's holding up a book, which represents knowledge and education, which I think is crucial for equity. And then a dove, which for me is, you know, peace and love. It gets it gets a little hokey, but...
0: <laughs> well, what, you know, what interests me about the two different projects, which are only separated by four or five years, is that the Tubman Memorial wields familiar, f- familiar references with real muscularity and embodied wields familiar symbols, but then inverts them. So one embraces and one rejects and redefines. And in in terms of conceptual address, I mean, they're both bronze, but in terms of conceptual address, they're really kind of opposites.
1: See, I never really saw that as such, but I suppose so. Uh,
0: Because I was going to ask if that was intentional.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I, you know, every time these commissions come up, you know, I kind of like, it's a real scramble for me to kind of really figure out how I can still address these, you know, kind of imposed upon ideas and themes and still have my work have that same sort of presence about them. And sometimes, you know, even though they're all in bronze, they're using, you know, I'm doing cast of the ceiling tins, or I'm, you know, using roots as in the other piece, uh, as in Tubman. And sometimes, you know, those those sort of kind of icons or symbols of my work don't necessarily fit with each piece. So it's kind of remaking it every time. So. I should say the other component of Embodied was that, you know, I wanted this to represent kind of this really enriched, culturally enriched place that we live in, Los Angeles, and that, you know, we've got such diversity, people from all over the world. And I also know that many of them, especially, you know, recent immigrants and undocumented immigrants do not have a voice whatsoever in our city and definitely are voiceless in the judiciary system. And so I wanted to give them a voice. And so I went around to schools and prisons and just parks and solicited from everyone that would speak to someone coming up to them with a clipboard, <laughs> you know, to give us three words that represented justice to them. And we, I think we could had like 200 words. I think we had like, I don't know how many, like 15, 20 different languages just in that really kind of precursory sort of petitioning going or polling out there. But that was also really important to kind of have all these different voices. So they're all in these different languages. Hopefully, you know, we, we, we had a pretty good representation of who Los Angeles is. So.
0: Alison Tsar, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you. I really appreciate talking to you. I love your podcast, so it's a great honor to be uh, included.
0: Hi, everyone. I want to tell you about a free new app called Bloomberg Connects. It lets you access museums, galleries, and cultural spaces around the world anytime, anywhere. The app doesn't address just a single institution or one exhibition, but instead takes a portfolio approach by offering access to many different cultural institutions through a single download. On Bloomberg Connects, you can discover new cultural offerings, including some with which you might not be as familiar, creating exciting opportunities for you to find new ideas that address your interests across geographically disparate institutions. Bloomberg Connects currently has guides available for many institutions in New York and London, including New York's Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. It's presenting Away from the Easel, Jackson Pollock's Mural. Pollock's recently conserved 1943 masterpiece, through September 19th. Bloomberg Connects was created by Bloomberg Philanthropies to make arts and culture accessible to more people around the world. Download Bloomberg Connects today to access digital guides, to hear from artists, curators, and experts, and to get the stories behind exhibitions. You can download Bloomberg Connects on the Apple app and Google Play stores and from app.bloombergconnects.org slash modernartnotes. Bemis Center for Contemporary Arts in Omaha, Nebraska, presents Bemis Alumni Art Talks, virtual conversations with Bemis alumni and Rachel Adams, Bemis Chief Curator and Director of Programs. The series kicks off with 2020 Bemis Alumni Award winner Diani Whitehawk, a Lakota visual artist and independent curator based in Minneapolis, on February 9th at 7 p.m. Central Time. Whitehawk was a Bemis 2017-18 exhibiting artist in Monarchs, Brown and Native Contemporary Artists in the Path of the Butterfly. White Hawk will speak about her practice, her take on abstraction through traditional Lakota techniques, and her multi-channel video work, Listen, which showcases Indigenous women speaking their language in the specific region of its origin. RSVP to receive Zoom details at BemisCenter.org. Welcome back. Next up, Maria Antelman joins me to discuss her work on the occasion of soft interface at the Bemis Center in Omaha. The exhibition was curated by Rachel Adams and will remain on view through April 24th. Antelman's pictures, sculptures, and video installations explore the relationship between the body and stone, flesh and mineral, past and present, and geologic time and human temporality. In addition to the show at the Bemis, Antelman was recently selected for the Museum of Modern Arts New Photography 2020, which was, and is, presented digitally due to the pandemic. We'll have links to both the Bemis show and the MoMA presentation on manpodcast.com. Antelman has been the subject of a solo exhibition at the Visual Arts Center at the University of Texas in Austin, and she's been in many, many group shows in Greece, Chile, the United States, and in Germany. Maria Antelman, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. What is the genesis of your interest in the human body?
2: From day one, I started making work. I was including people in my photographs and my videos. Um, It took some time to get to where I am right now with uh, close-ups and um, body parts. But my interest has always been human presence and the human body. And even when I do not depict the body itself, my works are anthropomorphic, so they resemble the body.
0: There are a couple of body parts that have been recurring in your work for a while now. There are lots of eyes, there are lots of ears, there are lots of hands and fingers. Why those parts of the body?
2: Because I see from two different angles. First, I see the body as a tool. So this is what we use to communicate with the world, our eyes, our ears, our hands, our fingers. But at the same time, I see how the external world and specifically the technology we have created, communicates with us and um, I'm thinking about intelligent technology specifically uh, all these electronic devices that are uh, informational objects intelligent smart objects and uh, they look at us and they listen to us so it is a two-folded relationship
0: one of the things I see in a lot of your work is an interest in human senses, sight, touch, hearing. I'm guessing that once you kind of dialed in on the body that you quite quickly realized that you were as interested in those senses as you were in in the physical form of the body itself.
2: You know, as said- a the technology we're using as consumers evolved. And um, a few years ago, we started uh, realizing that the phone or the car or the refrigerator or the coffee maker or the thermometer are interacting with us in a way, or we can interact with them. Then there was a very big shift in the work. So it happened, I guess, slowly but then suddenly as well because it was kind of a shift that you know we understood we start you know reading all these stories about the phones recording your conversations and sending them out to people or appliances at your home collecting your data and uh, using them to send them to you know this data economy started becoming more apparent in our lives and Uh, This uh, kind of uh, changed my work a little bit and I was very interested in this uh, shift and I started to, uh, unconsciously of course, it started appearing in my work and then information technology has been a lot in my interest from from early on and I feel like the shift from analog to digital has to do a lot with uh, touch as well and the other senses, and this is very apparent in my works.
0: Yeah, it's one of the most interesting parts of your work. So one of the visual strategies you use for calling attention to human body, the human senses, and the way art and artists have focused on them over time, over long periods of time, is to pair present and past and to create visual rhymes almost, if you will, between components of of your work. Take Hypnos from last year, which is at the Bemis. It offers two pictures, two C prints, in a framed armature, if you will. So we see on the left-hand— we'll have this on manpodcast.com, of course— but we see on the left-hand side of the picture, I think your son, and one of his eyes, his nose, and his lips. And then on the other side of the armature— we see an ear and hair, probably a marble sculpture from, at least as I read it, antiquity. What about joining past and present in that way across time and really medium too, right? Interests you.
2: The picture on the left is my son who is sleeping. And this is, it connects to the title of the piece, which is called Hypnos. And um, here I'm, I'm using... The body or his image uh, to connect a uh, technology with uh, mythology, because hypnos in ancient uh, Greek mythology was the personification of sleep. And um, I'm very interested in the state of sleep since it is the one place that the uh, technology does not touch us or does not affect us. And in a way, it is like a shelter and it is the only place that we let go. But also it is the one place that our unconsciousness brings everything together, past and future. The picture on the right is from this part of a, of a sculpture from the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And I'm interested in connecting because all of my work is seen through the lens of technology and I'm interested, I have been interested, connecting different civilizations, you know, past, remote past and current and future technologies.
0: The way these connections play out across your individual works is both smart and entertaining. One of your favorite body parts, if you will, is the eye in work after work, you play the the eye and the shape of the eye off of other pictures and, and other objects. I'm thinking of a work like Hall of Mirrors from 2020 that was included in the Museum of Modern Art's New Photography 2020 exhibition. In that work, why do you like the idea of playing the eye, or in this case, two eyes, off of the sense of touch and around stone?
2: Because uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the eye, and because this is such a close-up image of the eyes, also the pupil as uh, mirrors, and then I, I think of the stone as a weapon and as a tool as well, and um, you can throw the stone and, and break the mirrors. I read somewhere that the eye, as you mentioned, is very, I'm very interested in it. And um, there is this thing that this little story that I quote often. It's a, uh, Socrates thought that the pupil is the most important part of the eye, not because it's from where we see, but it's because when someone looks at us, when someone looks at us, what he sees is his reflection in the pupil of our eye. So it's the absolute mirror, and um, as a photographer. I'm thinking a lot about optical devices. And uh, again, in this system that we live, there are cameras everywhere around us. So the eye represents for me this, uh, as I said earlier, this data economy, this obsession with taking pictures of or things looking at us, of cameras everywhere, you know, the way we we understand the world is only through looking at pictures and taking pictures.
0: Another work in which you, forgive the word, play with eyes is a two-minute video from 2019 called Seer, Deep, which might be called an investigation of Western art history's origins, both, both its subject and its material and, of course, how, how, how we see art. And you've talked before about a lot and and, and joked about how you're kind of an art history nerd, yay art history nerds. How did Sear Deep happen? How did you come to embrace making a work both about eyes and, and eyes we can't see?
2: The title is Seer, and in parentheses, Deep. I use the word deep because I'm thinking about deep data, which are very large sets of data that are meaningful because you can, analysts can get real uh, answers to questions from these very, very big sets of data. I use these eyes that they see, but they don't have, they're abstracted, they don't have a real vision, because I'm thinking about the blind oracles from antiquity, like uh, Tiresias, who don't see, but they know, but they see, in quotes, the truth. So, I'm thinking, what do we see and how obscured is what we really see? Do we see it with our own eyes or do we see it through screens? or through images of other cameras that are looking at us. So for me, there's always this tension between technology and human philosophical ideas, or, you know, the quest for the truth or something.
0: You're also having a lot of fun with the present and the past in that work. I mean, there's a, you know, I, I, I imagine it's based on, on ancient Greek sculpture.
2: Yes, it's the eyes come from a bust of Athena from the archaeological, from the National Archaeological Museum of Greece in Athens.
0: One of the ways in which you activate this work, if you will, is by portraying the face. It's a it's a video installation. You're you're, you're portraying the face from two slightly different angles in a way that, for me, recalls stereographs, the mid 19th century. Photographic technology that allowed people to feel like they were looking at a picture in three dimensions. You quite often pair things, such as eyes and, and other things, in your work. You know, stereographs were a, a pretty early-ish photographic technology. It fascinated people then, and honestly, it's still pretty cool, <laughs> and led to motion pictures and, and, and lots, of, lots of other things. Are you, were you interested in stereography?
2: No. But it's very interesting uh, how you bring this up because in a way it well it interests me now. I started making these uh, compositions of uh, ima- of different images superimposed. When I saw years ago, I saw on the internet a short uh, gif, a short loop of uh, a representation of an asteroid, uh, specifically Eros. Asteroid called Eros, and it was just five images in a very technical uh, GIF. The asteroid was moving and moving back and forth, and it was very awkward to me because it felt like it was uh, alive, or it was the movement was real in a very technical way, and it haunted me. I was thinking of it for a very long time, and years after, I recreated. I try to recreate this movement. And then I realized that when I make these little video compositions, my images have, they are alive, or they have a technical life of their own. And then I thought, if technology can animate things around us, maybe I can animate them as well. And I started working more on this you know, animated, uh, I, I call them video sculptures.
0: I, I, I love that. I mean, one of the ways, I mean, this is going back maybe 15 years. One of the ways stereographs were adapted for the digital age is that somebody somewhere figured out that you could make a, a stereograph, a card with one picture on each side of it, that you could replicate its three dimensional effect on a computer screen by making it into a gif or a gif a lot of you know your work kind of carries that that idea forward in a way or advances i should say that idea often in your work as we've we've talked about you you are calling our attention to our senses our senses as as you photograph them our senses as they are portrayed or represented in ancient art in a work called disassembler you create a series of images in which fingertips are denied touch the fingers are covered by a thing i don't know what to call it but that denies that denies touch we talked a little bit a moment ago about how in seer you know we can't see the eyes of of the face in seer and here in disassembler you're you're taking away a sense again you're taking away touch what about the removal of a sense or, 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 or visually representing the denial of a sense interests you?
2: Well, this video, it's like a five-minute video work. Um, it uh, presents a series of uh, images, uh, photomontages, uh, sculptures, you know, all this uh, imagery that uh, um, is uh, accompanied by... a. Uh, a soundtrack, and that is the, the conceptual infrastructure that, or the concept that supports the work. Uh, so the soundtrack is um, the technical specifications of a system that Amazon, the, the, the company Amazon, a couple of years ago patented, which is uh, it's a system designed for the pickers, which are the workers that work in uh, Amazon warehouses. So The system goes in the hands and it basically controls the movement of their hands through a radio system. So, again, I'm using the word system. The central system guides the picker's hands to optimize their performance. So they direct them. Or you have to go more to the left you have to go more to the right or the right beam is at the at the bottom or the back you know whatever so it's about uh, a lot about uh, automation and a lot about automation in uh, in the working force and how the body and the functions of the body and the gestures are are directly affected by these uh, new technologies or new systems to control the body. So in a way, it is about denying senses because um, I was thinking a lot about how our experiences are changing in this new world that we're just getting to know. And uh, the title of the piece, uh, Disassembler, refers to the way an engineer would trace back how a program works. So even though I talk about this uh, technology, the video is composed by these images of people working with uh, the land and dirt and uh, nature in general. And they touch uh, bones and skins and they build things from mud. So I am thinking, I was thinking of a post-technological or post-automation situation where, and that particularly much that you're talking about, that is denying touch. I was thinking how the hands are entangled in this system that they cannot uh, let loose. They cannot get away from it.
0: And finally, because I think we're both art history nerds, and, and I guess especially considering how often you use eyes in your work, I wonder how interested you are in surrealism and whether the relationship between your work and surrealism is something you enjoy and embrace?
2: Yes, I do. I, I love surrealism. In another conversation with somebody, I quote the the splitting of the eye from Luis Bunuel a movie Le Sien Andalou. And I'm thinking that they had a very deep understanding or intuition about the power of vision, which now it's like, it's all about vision. I feel like the rest of our senses are uh, are losing their strength compared to how vision is so important in our lives. Like we, we just, we, we cannot give enough input, we cannot have enough enough input for our for our vis- for our eyes. We just want to see. Our our eyes have become like these ferocious organs that they just want more and more and more.
0: I love that idea. I think, I, and and I think that is. I mean, I think I think you're you're right. That runs strongly across and throughout surrealism across lots of lots of different surrealist artists.
2: And also, I'm thinking about Georges Bataille, the book The Eye, I think the title is The Eye, which is all about uh, sexual desire and the eye, and the egg. The egg is also very present in the story.
0: I love it. Maria Antelman, thanks so
2: much. Thank you.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.